Hello and welcome to Clamp, the Creating, Living, and Making podcast. I'm your host, Grant Alexander, and joining me this week is Morley Kurt. Hello. And Austin from the High Caliber Craftsman YouTube and Instagram channels. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Austin. And for for those who join us weekly, you'll notice that we're missing a host. Adam, unfortunately, couldn't make it this week, but we decided to get someone who looks exactly like him, like 100%. <laughs> just, same accent. Just same accent, yeah. same everything. We were like, we need to get someone that comes from a similar part of the world. I'm pretty sure. Adam, it's, a very, uh, it's a nice new office you have. It's a big upgrade from your last one. Yeah. I, I was gonna attempt the Australian accent right then, and I just I was like, no, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only Morley can get away with that. Yeah, I, I was like, no, nah, I'm just nope, don't do it. All right, well, Austin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, so um, I kind of started making when I was around 16, and I started building surfboards in my parents' garage. That was my first real jump into making things. I uh, ended up going f- pro, um, making surf professionally making surfboards for a living. Uh, I did that for about 16 years. Um, after 16 years, I started making custom um, writing pens. So when I retired from surfboards, I, I rolled straight into that. So started making those. And then um, during that time, I decided I wanted to buy all these tools and my excuse for buying the tools was I was like, I'm going to start a YouTube and build things using those tools that I'm going to buy. Right. So, um, so I did, I started the YouTube, um, been doing that and the pens for, I don't know, probably like seven years now, not YouTube, just the pens. Been doing YouTube wow. for probably <laughs> two years and, uh, that's about it. Full-time, full-time making. Oh, very so very fun. I think you're our first, uh, you know, person who's on the thing that they're full-time maker on selling things. We've had a few full-time content creators, but uh, it's very interesting to talk to someone who can actually uh, sell products instead of just themselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have an OnlyFans also, so that's technically okay. selling myself. Nice. Yeah, that's, right that's, Thanks. yeah, yeah. But that's not it's what we're talking. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, other than OnlyFans, what are you up to this week, Austin? Um, so, this week, I finished. I've been doing a big um, three-bedroom remodel, flooring, paint, trim, all that kind of stuff. Uh, finished that up, and then I released a video today on um, a metal lathe tool where you use a bearing. So, it, if you have a part that you put into your lathe that's running um, eccentric, it's kind of got a wobble to it, you can use the bearing the pressure as you feed it into the lathe and it will true it up um, to make it run more true. So when you go to remove your material, it won't remove as much at the far end from the chuck, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of like when you shim up a board for a planer or, you know, something like that, where you're, you're just like, you're like, I, instead of taking off all this wood, I'll try and make it so that it takes off the minimal amount. And I guess for you, it's metal. Right, right. Yeah, same idea. And then you can actually use it where if, say, you were using a really thin disc, almost like imagine a a maximum size coin, you know, Um, if you put that in a chuck, 
it's really difficult to get it to run true. The bearing, you can mm-hmm. actually come in directly from the side and it'll get it to run within a couple thousands, which is, you know, really, it's a really fast way to get uh, very accurate results. So it's, it's actually, it's a tool I've had for a long time and used it all the time. But then uh, somebody saw me using it. They're like, you should really do that for YouTube. I'm like, oh yeah, I should make another one real quick. So that's what I did this week. Post the video today. Yeah, I, I watched it earlier. Um, it, I, what I really wanted was like it. It made me think of trying to get my bandsaw running true, and I want it somehow to like get because I don't have a metal lathe, so I don't need this little tool. But it made me think of like other ways I could try and think about getting to use it, and it reminded me a lot of the bearings on my bandsaw. So, do you remember the um, center finding tool that I made a few weeks ago? Mm-hmm. The the idea for using bearings to run for the center finder to run on came off of this tool. So oh, I nice. was looking at that tool, and that was that's what kind of gave me. The, and I saw somebody using like a two dowel rod um, center finder, or like two dowel rods with a pencil in the middle. And I was like, man, if they use bearings, it would be like super slick and and really good if you were, especially if you were dragging it over top of metal. And then I was like, well, if I do mm-hmm. that, I can do the uh, carbide scriber or make it where it's removable where a pencil will go in so that's what that's looking at this tool that i made this week is what made me go for that that tool last week with the bearings yeah bearings are fun that's for sure (laughs) well morley what about you what have you been up to this week yeah um well, you know, bearings are fun until they explode when you are uh, doing an ollie. So, you know, I had my skateboard all repaired. I had a nice uh, three or four day streak going at the skate park after I replaced the bearing, after I had a little explosion. And then our provincial government decided to say, you know what the best way to stop the spread of COVID is? Not allowing people to go do outdoor recreational activities at public <laughs> parks. So uh, with that flawless bit of logic, uh, I haven't really been able to do much skateboarding recently, which kind of stinks. Um, but it has been productive uh, week otherwise. I've been working on this kerf bent chair project that I'm really excited about. Oh. Um, it's this this shape is kind of inspired from like a Japanese Shinto shrine. I don't really know how else. <clears throat> sorry, I don't really know how else to describe that shape. But like slightly curved top, and then it's going to have pretty minimalist, slightly um, splayed out legs and a cross piece. Um, so it's first time I tried curve bending, which is really fun. First time I've really like done any legit epoxy stuff other than uh, five minute epoxy. So. Uh, I braved the unseasonably cold weather today in Ontario and went out and started sanding off, uh, all the overport epoxy and, uh, it's cool. It's, it's fun. It's a, it's a really fun project. Did you, when I saw that, I was like, he's going to regret how much he overpoured on that epoxy because it looked like a lot of sanding is going to have to happen. Am I right? Um, you know, it's like as much sanding as, a good amount of standing in other projects. It's <laughs> there wasn't really any way around it um, because the curves are so thin that there's a lot of surface tension. So over time, the epoxy mm. settles down into the curves as the bubbles go out. So I would go back and fill up and like kind of top up each curve a little bit. So um, 
not having a syringe, it was just kind of the way to go. And, you know, like I spent like, you know, 10, 15 minutes this afternoon sanding and got most of it. So it's probably like 15 more minutes and I'll be, I'll be all flush. I don't know. Having done a lot of just hand sanding in my life, the fact that I can just use a power center, I'm like, this isn't even work. I just hold it in the place while the machine does it. And I can listen to a podcast. I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of, it's all good. So, um, there's this stuff called Cavasil and basically what it is, it's, it's, it's exploded sand and it, it, they use it to thicken resins. So you can thicken epoxy, you can thicken polyester. And if you make it thick enough, it's actually, you can turn it into where it's like almost a paste, almost like Bondo. So mm-hmm. you can actually use one of those hard yellow, um, like, um, bodywork squeegees mm-hmm. and you can squeegee it down into those holes and it makes it so, um, so it's not running all over the place. And so next time, if you think about it, you could give, if you're going to do another project similar, you can always go with something like that. That's, that's how, when we're doing like surf back in the day, when we were doing surfboard repairs, if you had a, a crack that was semi deep and you didn't want to put it like tape dams and make all kinds of crazy stuff, you mm-hmm. thicken it up, swipe it in there. And it basically, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, we'd make it, we'd make it even thicker than like drywall mud. So gotcha. That's Might interesting. Cool thing. When you when you texted me that I should uh, try Bondo, I was just immediately like, nope, 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 because <laughs> I just hate the smell so much, yeah. and I hate sanding it so much. So I was just like, didn't even consider even anything like that. I was just like, I don't want to do that at all. <laughs> yeah. But that's interesting. Now that you say it, that's definitely something I'll look into uh, for future projects. Um, other than that, though, I actually I've been working on an Austin high caliber craftsman builds project. Um, Austin sent me a mallet or a mall kit, I believe, not a mallet. Uh, I know there's a difference that I'm sure Grant will correct me on if I'm not saying it correctly. And uh, so I'm designing a stacked handle for that, Um, possibly only stacked leather, but I also may add other materials as well because I'm going to use the laser cutter at work to cut out all the discs. So I'm modeling it in fusion and then slicing the handle up and then we'll import it into the laser cutter uh for that so it'll be cool i think i'm gonna make a little like tutorial video on making a uh you know like a stacked handle infusion and and integrating that with a laser cutter so pretty excited for that it's like something i haven't really done before and it's uh as i said on my impromptu live on instagram yesterday it's really nice to be like using the materials from a craft that i don't have any uh experience with like machining like i got these these nice brass acorn nuts and the washers and i'm like oh this just this feels so good to work with it's uh it feels like extra nice materials when you can't really make it yourself are you going to uh are you gonna use veg tan yes i'm going to use veg tan and then some other material i don't even know what yet cool Hmm. yeah um well yeah grant what have you been up to this week well, I also got a high caliber craftsman mall um, in the mail. I uh, need to do something uh, with it. I haven't decided exactly what, but uh, I'm not going to do leather. That's how I've decided, even though leather is the way that this kit can be done, I'm going to try and do something different because everyone else who's, uh, you know, get this mall kit going, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be doing leather handle. So I'm going to, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll do it like a bear make it Justin style where I put a bunch of nuts in there and make a metal handle. 
Uh, the other thing that I've been up to is I made some leather handle grips for uh, my uh, bicycle restoration project that I've been dealing with. I uh, I, I was contacting uh, Ethan from Ethan Carter Designs um, because as I was trying to make them, I was using my Ethan Carter Designs exacto uh, knife and it had the corset stitch on it and I wanted to replicate that so I was asking him some tips and tricks on how to measure circles and whatever and I thought you know that's a it was a really you know in the end it, it was just like he's like trial and error and now that I've done enough of them I know how to do like, I know the right size but uh, otherwise he was like just keep taking it off a little bit at a time uh, obviously I, you know the first time I tried it I took way too much off. I was like, I'll just sneak up on this cut. And then it was like, oh, it doesn't even wrap around the, the handle anymore. What the hell happened? But uh, what it, it made me yeah. think about different ways of, of trying to make a business out of your making. And like Ethan is selling those uh, ice pick or not ice picks, those exacto uh, knives. And, you know, wrapping leather around them. And then my wife, like, loves that exacto knife. She always goes and steals it from my toolbox. I might have to order another one. Oh, um, nice. But, yeah, it's something that I thought would be a really good thing to, to chat about. And since we have someone here who's a, a professional maker and has been since she was a teenager, uh, I thought it would be a really good thing to talk about. Like, how do you get about – how do you – like, to just let's go from the beginning – how did you start your business? Were you just selling to your friends and you realized that you could make more of this or what? Let's hear it. Yeah. So at that time I was making surfboards. Um, so it's, it started off when I was in my parents' garage and I was building boards in a single room, which is like the absolute worst way to build surfboards because it's like super dusty and then you need it spotless clean for the glass. Right. So it was just a nightmare. And so I started out with like, you know, your closest friends that would actually buy something from you. And then it was kind of like friends of friends and then kind of neighborhood people. And then before you knew it. So like (laughs) one day this cop pulled up and I was like, the, we're using polyester resin, right? Which is extremely smelly. It's not like epoxy. So like when you're glassing, when you got a gallon of resin going off of poly, everybody within like 300 yards knows that you're doing it. Oh. And I was in the middle of like suburban neighborhood, you know, my both neighbors are like 10, 10 feet away from my house, you know? And uh, so people knew that I was building surfboards in the neighborhood. Right. And so it would kind of go around and then this cop pulled up one day and I was like, all right, this is it. We're shut down. <laughs> you know, they, I got reported or something. And, and, uh, it turns out he was there to order a board for me, but he pulled up <laughs> in a squad car. And I remember my dad's face like, uh Oh, what's going on? And he's the cops like, he's not in trouble. You know, cause I was like 16. I'm just picturing and, uh, the ghostbusters EPA agent. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Do you know who I am, sir? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, so, so anyways, then it started kind of being, it got to the point where I was, I didn't know the people who were ordering the boards, you know? And, uh, I ended up slowly, I built an, I built a shed behind the house and then I split the rooms. So one was the dirty room and one was the glassing room. And then, um, maybe a year later or so I ended up actually, 
I bought out a guy that owned a surfboard company and they glass surfboards for all kinds of, um, all kinds of different, uh, manufacturers. So people there's in the surfboard industry, a lot of guys just shape them and then you take them to a glass house and the glass house finishes them out. So I ended up buying that and then running my brand. So that was kind of the transition point was that's when I went like legit. If you want to say it that way. I mean, I was selling and making money and running a business out of the house. It was a art business. <laughs> and then, uh, cause it's, you have to be zone industrial to build surfboards. And, uh, so when we transitioned, I was in like the full on <laughs> industrial complex, you know, with fireproof rooms and on the whole, and the whole deal. And, uh, so that transition was, I don't know, maybe over like six or eight years, you know, from, from, from beginning to, 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 you know, like nine guys working for me in a big 5,000 square foot facility and doing a lot of surfboards a year at that point, you know, thousands. So the, the in between, and people always ask, they're like, you know, I want to get started in my own business. How should I do it? And I'm like, every day try to pull the boat closer to the dock, right? <laughs> just just try to get out there, try to get your marketing going, try to get um, anything you can get going before you take that leap to try to get to the boat, right? Just keep bringing the boat closer so you don't have to make the big <laughs> leap, right? Because most of the time when people go to business, they fail and then they fail because they didn't build up enough base before they went for it. Um, and so the key is, is, just try to stay as small and flexible as possible in the beginning. And then, you know, as you, as you advance in, in your um, sales and, and the quantity of work that you're putting out, then you can kind of take a little bit more gambles because you have a little bit of a safety net. So when you started out, how many hours a week were you working? Um, like first started out hard, hardly any. I was, I was surfing and say, you know, dad, I'm working on surfboards. R and D's at the beach. You know, we got to go research and development on this, on these boards. But, um, so like I ended up going to college for business and then I learned that going to college for business prepares you to work for somebody else's business, not to basically not to run your own. And so I made it two years not, and, I remember talking to the, my business teacher and I was like, I don't think I should be here. He's like, I don't think you should be here either. Cause I was already like running a business and busy. And I'm like, I'm missing time right now to build boards, to be in this class, to wear a suit and tie, which I will never wear. And he's like, he's like, you should probably leave right now. I was like, okay, see you later. And that was the end of my college. And then like on the way home, I was like, the hell did I just do? I'm gonna have to tell my parents I just dropped out. Like <laughs> both both my parents were teachers. So it's like, oh, you know, wow. I'm gonna be a big deal. And uh my dad was basically like, he's like, that's fine. But he's like, you you better go a hundred percent and be really pushing. So from that point forward, it was I wasn't messing around. It was, you know, nose the grindstone, make the money during the summer, bank it up you know, build stock during the winter. Um, cause it's fairly seasonal. And then, um, <laughs> really, uh, I mean, it's not as seasonal as you would think it was actually because wetsuit technologies come so far that it's not too bad. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and then, uh, we also not got too bad like, where you live. Not it's, it'd be bad where I live. <laughs> uh, 
It's not that much different during the winter, to be honest. Like, like it, our water temp in the winter here is like 34. So it's pretty, pretty brisk. But the air right. is our what water. really makes the big difference. Yeah, I, I think our water temperature is below freezing because it's ice. Right. <laughs> you don't typically surf in yeah, a lake. Not very often. I know. There's some guys, we call them freshies. <laughs> really? This actually, yeah. I think there's yeah. a good bit of surfing. Um, I know in Montreal uh, on the on the rapids, uh, there's a pretty big surfing scene there, and I think on in Toronto as well. There's an area where some people surf. Yeah, there's there's there were surf clubs like all in the Great. I think they might be called the Great Lake Surf Club, um, like Wisconsin and Ohio has one, and I would see them. They would uh, they'd all come down in a caravan and vacation down here by us because they. We would surf um, Hatteras a lot, so it's barrier islands. And uh, I'd see them down there because they'd be camping the campgrounds and surfing. and All real pasty white guys. I'm like, you guys have got to be all together. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're from Ohio. I'm like, okay, that makes a lot more sense, you know, because they got, like, neck tans from the wetsuit. And yeah. uh, it's pretty funny. But there's a surprising amount. And um, a lot of guys, so uh, freshwater isn't as buoyant. So they would actually get their boards custom made a little bit thicker, um, oh, interesting. Because it's not; it's a little bit more difficult, and they have such short um, swell fetch. So because it's wind driven, so it's they're very the swells are really stacked on each other. It's not ground swell, so the boards are just a lot different, a, lot, a little bit more nose flipping the rocker, like the curvature of the board. Um, anyways, side sidebar, but, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're getting into the weeds on surfboards that I don't think beyond well, it's well well beyond my understanding of what even you're using words I don't even understand. Um, <laughs> but I don't think you got to it. Okay, when you quit school, were you working forty hour weeks? Were you working eighty hour weeks? Yes. Yeah. Oh, way more. Yeah, I was working um, at a minimum eighty hour weeks. It just because at that point it was. I had to, <laughs> right. to prove that I was going to go for it. And, and that my business grew tremendously in that amount of time. Um, so I was working way more hours than I would have worked at any other job. I'm curious when you say prove, do you mean like prove to yourself or, you know, make a living? What, what do you mean when you say prove? So prove to my, I was living in my parents' house. So okay. I had to prove to my parents that this was going to be legit, that I wasn't just, you know, trying to surf all day, which I mean, gotcha. that's really what I wanted to do, but this was the closest thing I could get to that. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, and then what I, the main thing I try to do is I, I started trying to get accounts where they would sell my boards, um, out of the surf shops. And then, and then I was, and then I started picking them up for doing repairs, which repairs is where the real money's at in, in surfboards. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's very minimal material cost, and and low labor really, and so you can you you make a lot more money an hour doing that than you do building boards. Yeah, it's true in every industry, right? It's like you you only make the thing once, but all the infrastructure around the product is where all the real money is at. It's like when people say, you know, like everyone's. Uh, you know, everyone's buying electric cars. Well, don't start an electric car company, start a mechanic company that can repair the electric cars or start the people that's going to, you know, that's a bad example, but you know, another product develop the infrastructure around that product because 
I don't know. Yeah. Money wise, it's, it's where most of the money is. It's like printer companies are not printer companies. They're ink, ink companies, companies that sell printers. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing because of how much of the repair industry has disappeared. And I wonder that, what, what, like what the, why that's happening. Is it because like people are trying to make things that can't be repaired so that you have to buy another one? Well, I don't know the answer except for I know the answer for surfboards is that so these are like really expensive handmade boards, right? So like my average mm-hmm. board was going for like 1200 bucks. So it, you bring it in and it was only 50 bucks to fix it and it would last, you know, like my average board 10 or 12 years is what I was hoping to get out of it and and I've had some of them way longer than that. So um with boards, you can repair it and it'll last a really long time. Um, so the, the repair industry, like we, we didn't have, you know, there, we're not making injection molded parts that when they crack, that's it. Like it's just fiberglass and foam so you can fix right. it. Hmm. So Austin, I'm curious, like in having your feet pretty firmly in the ground of like physical products, then what attracted you to the YouTube world? And wanting to make videos. So <laughs> I I actually did YouTube videos when I built surfboards. And I had no idea what I was doing. My dad was filming and making the videos. And I was like, what are you putting this on? And he's like, oh, we're going to put it on YouTube. And I had no idea. Like he was a tech teacher. So he kind of was in early with that kind of stuff. And um, so my, I think I had, I think they're like 2008, 2009 is when I was putting my first videos on YouTube, something like that. So they look like they're filmed with a potato. It's terrible quality, <laughs> <laughs> but um, they were one of the first surfboard glassing surfboard. The weird thing about surfboards was that um, it's like a, the job security in the surfboard industry is that you don't know how to build them. Right. So the older guys do not want to teach anybody because that's their job security. Um, so I actually caught a lot of flack when I was putting them on YouTube because people were like, okay, now everybody's going to learn how to build surfboards. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's what I would have loved when I was 16 instead of me having to just figure it out, you know, and waste a ton of money. And, you know, like the first hundred boards were probably pretty rough, you know, because I just <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. And um, so I, I've, I had done YouTube before. And then um, when I started doing the pins, I was like, you know what we need to do? We, we should do some, um, some cool builds because when you're making product, it can get pretty not, not tedious, but just uh, like monotonous where you're making the same, you know, like especially like the pins that I make, I'm making like fi- I'm doing 500 of one step and I'm doing wow. 500 of another step, you know, and we're just processing massive amounts of shells and stuff. And that is definitely not my normal style. Like I, I, I don't, I'm not made for that. So the whole time I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool doing anything else besides this <laughs> right now. <laughs> and uh, I told my wife, I was like, I, I want to do something different, like at least a couple days a week, you know, like try to get, you know, but I don't want to stop making. I want to make something unique or, or, or a project that I had an idea for. And um, so, and I told her that I wanted to actually slow down the business some because it was at a unsustainable level for how many people I had working for me at that time. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to slow this down. I'm just, it's just too much. And I didn't want to hire a bunch more people. Um, so I kind of stepped it back and, and, and re retooled it so that I had enough time where a couple days a week, a p- couple of partial days a week I could do uh, YouTube. So, and the benefit to the doing YouTube, I was like, Oh, you know what would be really nice? This new tool. And then I could do that one, you know, let's buy this thousand dollar tool. Cause I got this $10 project that I want to work on. Yep. And that's, you know, that's how I was like able to like backdoor all these tools in with a, uh, a purpose. So, so in, in talking about investing in tools, um, I want to talk about that, like on a serious note on not this, like, I'm going to make a $10 thing and put it up on YouTube and, and not even be monetized for a year kind of, you know, joke, but you, you obviously had to invest in tools for your business. And from what I remember, there was like this part that you could buy, um, and you just dis- you discovered that you could make it cheaper if you owned a metal lathe. I think that's how you got into getting a metal lathe. If I'm not, does this ring a bell? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's this little piece of brass that in, and I use two of them in every single pen that I make. And to get them from the manufacturer, it was like fifty cents a piece which doesn't sound like a lot until you're like, that's a buck a pen. If you're doing 10,000 pens a year, that's $10,000 that you're flushing down the toilet. Mm -hmm. So I found out that I was like, okay, you know what I can do? I can get a metal lathe. I'd already had multiple wood lathes. I was familiar with them and I kind of wanted to get a metal lathe anyways. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to buy one and learn how to use it and make this part. And however many parts that'll take me to break even on this lathe. I have a towel. I had a tally going, right? So I wanted to get it to the point where that one little 50 cent part would pay for this lathe. And I was able to do it. I projected it would take me two years. I did it in like six months. That's awesome. Yeah. So six and the months. lathe was like, wow. yeah, the lathe was, um, it was like 6,500 bucks. Cause I bought a brand new one. And, uh, Whoa. So, yeah. So in six months I was able to do it. I was running a lot of parts off of it. And, um, yeah, it, it's cool. I mean, it just kind of goes to show you that like you can't fully realize the benefits of any investment when you are thinking about buying it. Like it will likely, I mean, as long as you're like motivated and creative, it will likely yield things over and above what you initially think because you're creative, you're smart, and like you're motivated. And so those like those that domino effect of productivity just kind of happens, which is which is pretty cool. And it's a good reason not to like just write off the idea of investing in yourself. Right. And so then what happened because, you know, because I was just making that one part and it's I bought. So when I bought the lathe, I could have made this part on like a Harbor Freight mini lathe. Right. No problem. But I was like, let's go buy a lathe that's way bigger, way more capable than what I need right now. Like let's buy the bigger one so I can grow into it is basically my thought. And, uh, cause I think a lot of people fall into that trap where they, they end up buying, um, like the smallest, like, let me just get in the door just a little bit. And then a year later they're buying again. And then a year later after right. that, they're buying again. I'm like, if you would have just bought from the beginning, you guys would have been not out as much, you know? The so buy once cry once. Right. Yeah. That's totally, I agree. And, uh, so, but what that did was it opened up my ability for doing 
metal pens instead of just doing, you know, brass. Now I could do harder stuff like um, titanium and copper, brass, aluminum, steel, Damascus stuff. Uh, so now I had a way broader range of pens that I could make. And there were much more expensive pens than what I was making before. So that just that one piece of machinery opened up like a whole new, on a whole new world, you know, we'll go Aladdin <laughs> with it. And, uh, <laughs> and it just to, to a market that I didn't know was there. Right. So, and I, and I think if you can see, like I bought a, the metal aid new because I didn't know any better and I was scared to buy a used one. Uh, cause I wasn't familiar with it. I didn't want to buy one that was going to need repairs, that kind of stuff, which looking back now with my experience and not with how many lathes I bought since then, <laughs> I would have saved a lot of money by buying a used lathe. But, um, so auctions, things like that, you know, that's the, that's the way to go to get, uh, the best bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point about like looking for the used tool. But I think with business, I don't think if you're going to buy something, don't be afraid to buy new. I think is it's something that if, if it's a business expense, it's okay to buy new, right? Like I think, like you you said, in six months you had it paid off, right? Like I think when I think about other tools that I've bought over time, you know, obviously as a hobbyist who even like has commissions that people asked me to do six months ago that I still haven't done, um, not really. I don't want to talk too much about that. But, uh, you know, I've got, you know, picture frames that are just sitting there waiting to be built. And it's like, you know, an afternoon's worth of work and a, and a you know, a big paycheck at the end of it. I just think about it and go, you know, if I were running a business, I would be doing things so much different. And buying new, new tools instead of uh, spending all my time researching on Kijiji for a, a South Bend uh I think would probably be like the the cost efficient way to do it. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if it's as cut and dry as that. I think it, it does depend on the tool. Like so, for example, we're looking to buy a big laser cutter at Steam Project. Um, we have a twenty four by twelve inch Epilog laser cutter right now, which um, was bought at a time when the laser was not such a core part of the business. But since COVID hit, so much of our business is around these kits that we manufacture and send out to kids, which have many laser cut parts. So this small epilogue laser is running all the time. So we need a bigger one and we need something that can make things faster. And the thing with lasers is they're very expensive. And a lot of times they're coming from out of the country. So you also have to think about import fees and customs and shipping, which can easily add a few thousand dollars onto the already like 10 to 20 to, I mean, depending on what type of laser you're looking at, it could be like tens of thousands of dollars. And so with, I think with some of the equipment that's that expensive, it a lot of times can be really worth it to find that gem used item in your area, which like we, we might've found uh, very recently, just because you can save so much time and just like thousands of dollars, just with like a slight more bit of effort. Yeah. I think part of the key too, when you're trying to, you know, so like I will constantly, even now, even though I don't need any new tools, I still watch the market, right? I'm still watching Facebook marketplace. I'm watching Craigslist. I'm, and even today a lathe popped up and I just like, you know, mm-hmm. I had that brief second 
I have seven lathes in my shop right now. (laughs) And there was a brief moment where I was like, that's a good deal. I should go get that right now. Cause just because it's a good deal, you know, and, and I, I'll flip tools like, you know, eventually. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, I was going to say, I was like, have you, are you thinking about flipping them if you were to buy them or is it just because it's a good price? Um, yeah, maybe, you know, eventually I would do that. So, so what I've been doing, my technique is I buy shipping containers and fill them with the tools that I buy, (laughs) (laughs) fill the excess in there. And then, uh, I have sold some, but, um, you know, so, but what I'm saying is I, I constantly keep feelers out and I keep my radar up for, for deals. And so maybe I'm not looking for something, but maybe I'll find one that would be a better tool than what I have. And if it's going for something similar in price to what I have currently, that why not upgrade for free? You know? So that's kind of how I want, like my mills, I've been through several and you know, I, I haven't paid hardly any money for them. If you discount the original um, investment, you know, it's basically been the same amount of money turning over and just getting better and better tools. So I think that's a good technique, especially in the beginning totally. when you're strapped, you know, like when you, when you just start out, it's a lot to, especially, you know, we talked about this before um, where like woodworking is not super expensive to get into, but machining is, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a barrier to entry. So the, the, the used tools really will let you in a lot, a lot sooner. Man, every mm-hmm. time I see a machining video, like whether it be yours or like Jimmy Dresser, this old Tony, I just look at all the different cutting heads they're using and I'm like, ah, oh, each one of those things must be like a hundred bucks easily. <laughs> just like, what is the minimum uh, in, in initial investment to get into milling? Yeah. When people first start getting into machining, they're like, oh my God, this lathe is like $6,000. And I'm like, you have no idea what the expensive <laughs> part is. <laughs> like the lathe is 6000 Get ready because it's going to be six to $8,000 worth of tooling to run that, you know, to have everything. Now, obviously, you can do some projects, but I don't think there's an end to the machine tooling. Like, I haven't found it, and I'm, I'm in pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think there's an end to it. Well, it's fun. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just going to kind of throw out a theory here. Like, I think part of the expense, part of the, uh, the, th- the factor that makes tools cost what they do is the market that exists around them. So like there's this huge hobbyist woodworking market, but I feel like machining is still traditionally centered around factories and tool and die makers and professionals. And so there's not the same sort of hobbyist machining. Is that, do you think that's like a valid assessment? No, no, actually I don't. Um, I think okay. that there's a, there's a lot of hobbyist machinists, um, and home shop machinist guys, um, whether either they were their machinist at work and then they have a home shop or they retire and they have a home shop. You'd be surprised how many there are, um, okay. or just guys. It's, there's a lot of guys that are like, like engineers that'll have a shop in their garage at home where they're making their own little projects and stuff. Um, which I think most of them are like 35 and up, you know, <laughs> like, I think the the younger kids are more into like kind of like 3D printing and lasers and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I think a lot of those kids, if they were older, would have gotten into the machining. That's interesting. Okay. 
Right. It reminds me of like Zen and the art of mortal cycle maintenance when he talks about having a, a lathe to do maintenance on his right. motorcycle. Yeah, he does. Right. Like back in the day, apparently people just had this kind of stuff. But I think when you, I think the big, for, for me looking at it, because I was looking at lathes today, because I don't know why, and I just looked at it and went, I saw the like whole bunch of tooling was coming with this lathe that was in my area. And I just looked at it and went, I don't even know what, is that good tooling for what I want to do? It's probably not. Um, you know, it's, it's like there's all these like things that I was looking at going, there is so much information that the barrier to entry for me getting into any kind of metal work has nothing to do with the expense, has everything to do with the knowledge like thing. And that's, I think, a lot to bring it back a little bit to business is the same thing for business. It's like taxes and like, I don't know, Google just emailed me today and said, what's your GST number, which is our like general sales tax number. I was like, I don't have one of those. Like, I'm not a real business. I just play one on YouTube, right? Like, uh, you know, it's all like, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like it's like any other thing you start. You know, you you learn the minimum you need at the beginning, and then you like gradually pick it up. Like, if you were to buy those lathe tools, I'm sure you would slowly start figuring out how to use it in the same way that you figured out how to do woodworking. I mean, you might have started a lot earlier in your life with woodworking, but like. Same thing with taxes. How do I do my taxes? Well, maybe the first step is like go on the government website and see what the resources are for small businesses. Like it's all doable. I know it's all doable, but the barrier to entry between wood, like wood is like, there's one blade and it cuts the wood. And, and with metalwork, there's like 700 different things and they all cut the wood slightly different or metal slightly or wood, whatever. I don't know. Right. It's like, I want I want Austin to weigh in. Austin, how how do you think of that perception versus how you think of wood versus metal? So really, we only use like uh, carbide and high speed steel for cutters, typically, unless it's some kind of you know crazy other EDM process or whatever. Um, so in fact, I mean, in fact, you guys have seen me use the uh, router router bits to cut profiles in, in brass and things like that. So, um, and that's just carbide carbides, carbide, you know, it's, it's all about the angles mm-hmm. that they're ground mainly is what's important. And then they, they sell different shaped carbide inserts depending on what kind of material you're going to use. But all that being said in the home shop, almost everything can be done with high speed steel, which is the same as what a, a, a lathe, a wood lathe gouge is made from, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, not the one with replaceable carbides, but the actual um, high-speed steel gouges. So it's the same stuff. It's just... But it's more the profiles and everything. Like every time I look at it, I just look at it and go, there's like, when I look at wood, I guess maybe it's because I haven't looked at enough routering stuff. But when I look at wood, I like, there's a table saw and it's got a blade and a circular saw. It's got a straight blade. My jigsaw, straight blade. Bandsaw, straight blade. Right? There's a lot of straight blades. And I feel like it in when I look at metalworking, everyone has this like kit out of random stuff that I just look at and go like, why, what is the, what is the meaning behind that? Um, and then I look at it and go, the thing I don't understand is feeds, speeds and feeds. And I'm sure there's a way of looking it up that makes it easy, but because right. I, uh, for wood, I go as fast as I can push it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So for brass and aluminum. As fast as you can push it, pretty much. And then, you know, it's the same thing. Like, you can cut brass and aluminum on a wood cutting bandsaw. 
That's because it's freaking yeah. screaming. You know, it's going so yeah. fast. So, but you were saying that they're all straight blades, but are they? Look at your carbide teeth on your um, table saw blade. They're not straight. They're there's curved. You know, there's like one straight one, then two different ways. You know, they're all they're all just shaped differently for performance, right? So it's the same thing for metalworking tools. It's just they look different from what oh, okay. you're used to seeing. So you know, once you once you learn the basics, and then we use what's called the uh, machi- um, machinist bible. It's the machinery handbook, and it has like all your feeds. I mean, it has everybody should buy one of these books, even if you're not a machinist, because it has so much load calculations and uh, threading, and like it's it's kind of like the engineer's black book. It's kind of what it's like, but like on steroids, you know, a thousand pages or whatever. Yeah. Oh, Grant, when you were saying, uh, you know, the router world in comparing that to machining like i was thinking the same thing like that's what i think when i think of routers and like like oh like this the single router bit is like 20 30 bucks then like if you want to do moldings and all these different Mm. profiles like how much are you going to drop on just router bits alone and you know i i do really think it's like that with every new craft like you see from the outside all of the millions of tools and attachments you can use but really once you start doing it like you can get away with very little it was the same when i learned the laser cutter this year it's like when i would see like any laser cutting video, I was like, I've never even, I've done zero 2d vector. I've done very little vector graphics design. Like I know nothing about how lasers work, but then, you know, you do that first project and they were great at this team project with me. Like they were basically like find something on the internet that you think is cool and then make a laserable file and cut it out. And then I, I found this like MC Escher tessellation and just that one project. I was like, Oh, okay. I can, I can use this laser cutter to make legit stuff now. It was the same with the 3D printing. I would, you know, like people get super into rebuilding their 3D printers and adding all these modifications, but you really don't need to do any of that to make really cool stuff with 3D printing. Um, and I, I'm, I would wager it's the same with machining. You know, you you use one cutter, it does something cool. You use another one, and I don't for know. sure, for sure, and that's humans what are smart. Yeah. yeah, the high speed steel. So the way that they for machining, they sell high speed steel blanks, and they basically just have one angle ground on each side. It's like a, I don't know, thirty degree or something. And then you actually just take it over to your grindstone and shape it, put your relief angles, and so you actually are making your own cutters. And once you kind of get the hang of it, it's it's not very difficult. And the the high speeds they're like eleven bucks a piece. So you could grind a whole set for, <laughs> for under hundred dollars. I mean, you're going to be riding the grinder for a long time, you know. So, but you know, like Grant, you were saying, there's a bunch of like the lathe for sale with a bunch of stuff. The bunch of stuff in the boxes is what's worth the money. It's not the machine. So like oh. when I go to look at a thing and they're like, oh yeah, all this tooling comes with it. I'm like, cool. And I'm looking at the tooling and the guy's like, you're not going to check out the lathe. I'm like, that thing's worth pennies in comparison to what's in these boxes. You know, of course I don't say that to him, <laughs> but I'm like, all this comes with it. Right. Right. So the, the South Bend nine inch. That right, I just but bought, that's what's the overwhelming. Right. Well, when you're going to do it, FaceTime. Right. That's the, it's overwhelming. <laughs> FaceTime me and I'll tell you what it's worth. Um, all right. But, uh, so like you were talking about, you know, entry level to business and, and making into business. If I was going to try to do from scratch what I'm doing now, one of the first things I would buy is a laser because I think that that is like an instant business in itself. In one tool, you can make money to start. And it's something that you could have in your house mm-hmm. and make money 
And that would be that what we were talking about where you, you pull the boat closer to the dock before you jump. That's an easy one to have. You can have it in an apartment. You know, you're going to probably smoke out yeah. your neighbors. A little I, bit, I wouldn't but. have it here. And in, in just in, with how close my window is to the next building. <laughs> you could at least do it until they call the yeah. cops. <laughs> but it would be what I'm saying is like it's it's a it's a good entry point. Yeah, and it's, sure. you can make fine finish finished projects right oh, away. Jets. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's fast and furious actually. So, but, okay. <laughs> well, I think that's, so I think this has been great. I agree. A laser or a CNC or both those things that it, you know, you could turn those into businesses. Boom, because they're working for you. Laser but over CNC. What I want, I'm just going to throw that in. Right. Depends on what you want to do. Um, but we'll, that's up to you to decide. You do your own research. But what I want to talk about is when to get out of a business because a lot of people get into a business and keep going with it even and then drive themselves to bankruptcy or get like, you know, it's the same with like any stocks or something. It's like you ride it till you've lost all your money. Then you go home with your penny stock and you're like, oh, I had a million dollars at one point. Now I've got nothing, right? And I know you got out of a business. And I think that would be something really interesting to hear is is what drove what, – what were the considerations you took when you were deciding to leave that business? And that will be our wrap-up point to leave this episode of the podcast too. Okay, so um, so I transitioned from surfboards to fins, or to fins to pins, and um, the way it worked out, I I had my first son during that time, so I was ready to get away from because we were using polyester resin, which is there's a, there's a lot of bad stuff in it, and it's not good for you to be around, even though you're wearing you know um, protective gear and stuff, you're still getting it, you're you're getting exposure. There's no doubt about it. So. Um, after doing it for 16 years, um, I just wanted to get away from it. I didn't, I knew it wasn't good for me, uh, to be around and like, I didn't have a way out, you know, I didn't have anything at that point. Um, so I didn't have another job to go to and I definitely wasn't going to work for somebody. I'd worked for for myself since I was 16. (laughs) That's a very difficult transition to go work for the man, you know? So, um, so I started making the pins and the pins really took off and I was still building surfboards at that time. And it just so happened to work out that like kind of how school was getting in the way of me building surfboards, building uh, surfboards was getting in the way of me making money selling pins. So I basically just kind of like phased them out, phased one into the next one, you know, with a little bit of overlap. And at that point I had a factory, I had a surf shop, a retail store, and I was like full commit and uh, uh, this is probably not the best way to do it, but I just closed the doors and walked away and just set up my, um, my machine shop and just never, never mess with the surfboard again. So I'm sure there's a smarter way to do that. <laughs> so, you know, all my customers were like the, uh, I had like thousands of ex-girlfriends calling me for like a year, you know, that's what it felt like. You know, because I've been building boards for him for, you know, over a decade for the same guys. You can just send uh, out one mass email. I didn't. Oh, man. (laughs) At that point, I was just like, I don't know. I was just so done. 
No, and honestly, that sounds like the the funnest way to do it. Like that sounds like yeah, I just want to do this thing, so I did it. But then you you have to deal with those thousands of calls. <laughs> yeah, so I I ended up I never answered emails. I didn't you know I didn't owe anybody anything or anything like that. I just shut it down, walked away, and I had this reporter that was like after me for <laughs> forever, trying to get an interview, trying to get an interview. <laughs> And finally I ended up like, I waited like eight or nine months and then I responded to him and I was like, I will give you an hour if you'll leave me alone. Cause he was just like call trying to get my number from people and nobody would give him my number and stuff. Cause, uh, so then I gave him that and I was like, okay, I need you to get this out to everybody that I'm not coming back. And then this is the, so whenever anybody re- tries to get me a building board, here's the, here's the article that shows that I'm not doing it anymore. So <laughs> So I don't know. Maybe it was the right way because it got me press, right? <laughs> there you go, playing a long game. Did you did you during that press talk about your pen business? Yeah, that's what I made it about. He's like, let's talk about surfboards. Well, let's talk about pens. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. So in reality, what it is is how to get out of you when you want to get out of business. You're doing it for your own reasons. Right? Yeah, I don't. You no, make the I mean, decision. I don't. Uh, yeah, it, uh, no. I mean, it's not your decision. If you if you bottom out your business, it's not your decision by that point. But yeah, if you're if you're walking away at a point where you have a successful business rolling, it's definitely got to be your call, right? You know, or you owe like crazy back taxes or something like that would be the other reason that somebody would get shut down. But um, yeah, it's definitely you know it's got to be your decision. And I see a lot of people that. I've been working in the same business that they've owned forever. And you can just see like the lights not in their eyes anymore. You know, they're like, they're basically punching the clock. I'm like, why don't you just go get a job? It'll be way easier than that. But at the same time, I, people could say that to me and I'd be like, I'm not going to go work for somebody, you know, like, you know, I can't do that. I can't work in an office job. I don't know. We're just, you know, everybody's different. Did So when you, at at the end of the surfboarding, did you feel like, you didn't have the passion you had when you were 16. Oh man, I was done. Yeah. Yeah. I, so yeah. I, okay. It was a long time, you know, but what really kicked it off was having kids and not wanting to be around the chemicals, you know, and bring that home. Cause like I would, <laughs> I remember one day I shaped boards all day. I never went in the glassing room, you know, our factory was two low, two levels. So like, and it was a, quite a distance down the, down the way. Um, so I shaped boards all day. I never went in the glassing room and I came home and I was laying in bed at night and I started coughing and my wife was like, Oh my God, how many boards did you glass today? I can just smell it when I coughed. And I was like, I didn't glass any today. <laughs> you know, I wasn't even in the glassing room today. And, but th- just the smell had just gotten into, into my lungs. And when I coughed, she could just smell the resin. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out of this, you know? And so that was, that was the night that I was like, yeah, I'm right. done. That's it. And so like then, then for the next three weeks it was like exit exit strategy totally well on that i think we're gonna have an exit strategy on this episode and i'm gonna gonna move on to thanking our patreon supporters um as you all know we got a a monthly uh pre-show hangout that we like to do uh Everyone who joins on Patreon gets access to the pre-show, the after-show, as well as a custom leather keychain by the made by the one and only Morley Kurt. Um, if you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com slash clamp. Uh, 
we really appreciate everyone who joins there, no matter if you're joining at the spring clamp level, uh, the C clamp level, or the F clamp level. We love everyone who comes and supports us there. Um, if you can't support us, we appreciate you just listening. Um, but if you want to support a little more than listen, you can go and uh, either write us a review, um, and then Morley will try and replicate your accent, which I'm really interested to hear later, the Louisiana slash Texas accent that Morley has been working on all week uh, for the review he's going to be reading soon. Uh and uh, you know, if you if you don't want to write a review because uh, you can't figure it out on Apple, because that's I know exactly how I feel. I go on Apple Podcasts and and I uh, don't know how to uh, to write a review. I don't know. Apple doesn't make any sense to me. I'm an Android person. So uh, if you don't want to do that, you can just share it with a friend. Um, you know, tell someone that uh, you heard about Clamp and that you can never have enough of them. Um, yeah, so uh, we're going to move on to the Clampmendations of the week. Clampmendations! Something, I've been watching these videos from this guy, he's Canadian, from Montreal actually, so from uh, Morley's former uh, city of living, or hab- habitating. The city of brotherly uh, love, as they call it. Oh, really? It's Philadelphia? No. Yeah. Philadelphia. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I'm sure you guys have seen this internet drama thing uh where the guy sings songs uh his name is is lou ballin um and he does these hilarious songs um about internet drama that he finds and he he turns the internet drama into a song it's it's hilarious i'm sorry i swore (laughs) bleep bleep that out adam come on um yeah uh anyways go check them out how about you morley and we'll end on austin yeah, uh, before I say mine, I, I can't remember what the account is called, but there's this fantastic TikTok account. He's probably on other social medias as well. And he does drum beats to like TV show clips. Have you ever seen those? Um, just like random video no. clips. He'll make a drum beat to like uh, people talking and it's absolutely fantastic. It's just along that same vein. Hmm. Um, so yeah, this week I wanted to shout out uh, a really cool artist. His name um uh, I don't really know how to pronounce this because there are some accents, but I will say Jiri Pross. Um, so I actually had seen his account before and I follow his company account, which is called Fluor Lab. Um, it was recommended to me in response to the uh, geodesic dome planter that I made. And he does these really cool uh, like bent wire and brazing stuff. Um, his company Fluor Lab, or what is it? No, Fluor, Fluor... Yeah, Fluor Lab. They are essentially these like really delicate flowers made out of like acrylic and bent wire and LEDs, and they open up when you wave your hand over them. Um, but his the rest of his account like is just like very interesting geometric shapes with like brazing and soldering and electronics. Uh, I think he uses some three D templates as well, and it's it's a medium that I definitely want to explore further. Um, so just like scrolling through his account is is very inspirational. And he also has a Prusa. So he's a kindred spirit in that sense. Uh, so yeah, Jiri Prous. It's J-I-R-I-P-R-A-U-S. We'll link him in the show notes. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I saw that uh, the metal wire bender jig that you made. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, Shout out to you for uh, your <laughs> triangle bending jig, which informed it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's cool. Um, I was going to go with um, Dave Ramsey. It's going to be my shout out or my uh, clampendation. So especially I was thinking about what's a good shout out for people that are trying to start a business, right? And one great thing to do is to not have any debt when you're going to try to start a business because you're just starting yourself out on the wrong foot for sure. Um, and, and I've used the, uh, his um, baby step program to get rid of all of our debt. So we, we, we live without debt. Um, so I buy all tools, anything with cash. Um, so if anybody's thinking about it to, and I, it, it's really freeing, I, th- I think it's called like financial pieces, his big program that he does. There's a lot of um, religious stuff, not my bag. Just nix that part if you're not into it and just listen to the financials. <laughs> and, uh, you know, take what you like, leave what you don't. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it, it's really helpful for some for, for some people. So that's my uh, clamidation. Nice. The other uh, sort of, I'm just going to add this on top, uh, in terms of paying th- for things straight up is that you're helping businesses because – credit card companies charge businesses more. And so all those rewards you're getting come right out of the pockets of the business owners. The higher uh, reward credit cards cost companies more. So if you pay for things with debit, you're helping businesses. And and I agree with doing that for the small businesses and then paying for the uh, everything with credit card for the bigger businesses because they've built that into their price. Fair. (laughs) And I'm just sticking to the man. Uh, so I, and I agree. I also live a uh, debt-free uh, life. The only thing I have is a mortgage. So I'm totally with you on that, but it's probably also why I've never really started a business because I just look at the money that would need to go into that and I go, I don't have it. So I'm not going to do it. I have always lived on a, if I don't have the money to buy it and I'm not willing to wait for it, I probably don't need it. Have you seen that SNL skit? Don't buy stuff you don't need. No. Oh, that's a classic. I'll link that in the uh, show notes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> or no, it's don't buy stuff you can't afford. <laughs> it's like we have wow. this new. It's this the new uh, best money management book. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. It's one. <laughs> it's one page long. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's classic. Oh, that sounds great. Well, it's now it's tough. time. It is. It's tough. time to hear Morley do his best accents. All right. Um, I was a bit blindsided by this because nowhere in the review does it say it's from Louisiana or Texas, but I trust Grant. Uh, so I guess I'll just wing it. Um, all right. Shop time with friends. I like the format of this show and the way the hosts interact. Reminds me of days sitting around the ice chest in the shop talking with my friends. Their topics cover not only physical making, but also the creating and li- the creative and living aspects. It has a good flow, and I'm often surprised how quick they make the episode feel. From Dean Slu, Dean LSU. Oh, I guess LSU, Louisiana State University. That makes sense. Ah, see, you're all starting. It's all coming together now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Five-star review from Dean LSU. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Dean. Uh, And, you know, one thing I thought about that when I was reading this review, I thought it would be a really good uh, review to have on this one because I think Austin – might know who this Dean guy is. Yep. That's for sure. You didn't sound like him more like is it Dean Duplantis. <laughs> yeah, yes. Dean Duplantis. <laughs> okay. Well, if granted said Texas, uh, anyways, sorry, Dean, I know that it's not how you talk. 
Dean doesn't sound like a typical Louisiana accent though. Like, like, like the Brandy, the, the welder, you know, she's got like the yeah. legit, but I think oh, yeah. they're like, he, he, he grew up like 10 miles from her. So it's crazy. The difference in really? um, tone that their, their, uh, their accent is. Yeah. Yeah. He, it, once he starts drinking more, Dean definitely has a little bit more, but why do you know Dean? Let's try and get your, okay. let's get your, <laughs> your selling in here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm on a podcast with Dean Duplantis and Christy from Twisted Twine Woodworking. It's called Making Our Way. And uh, we release uh, Tuesdays. It's a podcast about making stuff. Yeah. Nice. Well, on that, I want to thank uh, TF Turning for the use of our theme song. If you want to hear that, you can listen to the uh, after show where Morley likes to sing it a cappella. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that next week we will be doing a live recording. And by next week, I mean, it's going to be like two days after this episode Mm -hmm. drops. We're going to be doing a live recording Wednesday at 9 PM Eastern time. Um, and I'm not going to do any math. That's just the time you look it up. You put in the time zone and you put in your time zone and you figure out when it is. Uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, uh, April uh, 28th. And, yeah, we're going to be doing a live. It'll be up on our YouTube. So make sure you pop on by over to our YouTube channel and subscribe there. We're trying to hit 100 subscribers so that we can claim our custom URL. We're hoping that if we can do it, we'll get Clamp. We're not going to get Clamp because someone's probably already taken it. So we're hoping for Clampcast. The sooner we get there, the less chance that someone steals it from us. So uh, head on over to YouTube and check that out. And then join us for a live episode. Um, and as before we go, I want to know, Austin, where can everyone find you and where to buy your awesome pens? So my website is highcalibercraftsman.com. That's for all the pins. And then you can pretty much find me on every social media under high caliber craftsman. My making account is high caliber craftsman builds on Instagram. Right. Just to confuse people. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I like to have Just a split. To, yeah. <laughs> you like to have a split. I understand. Well, you can find us uh, collectively uh, everywhere on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, do we have a TikTok, Morley? Did you ever start that TikTok for us? No, I haven't. I don't know. We could we could try to do the Planet Money TikTok thing and just do like full on produced skits over and above our podcast. But I don't know if I'm willing to put in that work. <laughs> <laughs> so not on TikTok, but everywhere else. Search for Clamp. That doesn't come up. Clampcast or Clamp Morley Adam Grant. That combination of stuff will get you to us. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Until next time. You know, See you. You can never you can never have too many clamps, so don't forget to share this with a friend. Bye. See ya. Bye. Hello and welcome to Clamp. The Creating, Living, and Making podcast. I'm your host, Grant Alexander. And joining me today is Morley Kurt. Yo. And we have a special guest, Austin from High Caliber Customs. 
Ooh. <laughs> Craftsman. Craftsman. Okay, we'll just start that one again. I had like this brain fart. I was like, high caliber fuck. <laughs> All right. Adam's like, totally going to put that in at the end. Yeah, he is. I, I was like, I know he has two different you like Instagrams and one of them like has builds in it. And it's like, is it custom builds? Anyways. High caliber craftsman. He's a craftsman that's very high caliber. And there's things. Anyways, okay. So. Sorry. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Welcome back. All right. So, three, two, one.